jasoncharles.net. Art, Art and, and Culture. culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. Today, you will hear part one of our two-part interview with Steve Dubrow, filmmaker and creator of the documentary 18th and Grand, which chronicles the life of the Olympic Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on the JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. Today, I'm interviewing Steve Dubrow, who is the director and producer of the documentary film 18th and Grand. The main character of this documentary is the Olympic Auditorium. Welcome, Steve. Hi. Let's start off by talking about the film that you began making a few years ago. What was the impetus for that, and where are you at with it now? Well, it's been an interesting and long process where I basically... You know, having grown up in L.A., the Olympic was uh, sort of in the back of my mind. And I think for many people, it was in the back of our minds or the forefront of our minds because it was always on television from, you know, wrestling and roller derby uh, with Dick Lane to boxing. It was always there and it was kind of lodged in these black and white memories in the back of my mind. I saw these photographs of a the house photographer for the Olympic was a guy named Theo Eret, mm-hmm. and he was a German photographer who started shooting there in the mid '60s and shot until the early '80s. And uh, I was introduced to his photographs, and they really kind of sent me back in time. You know, everyone from you know Freddie Blassie to Danny Little Red Lopez to Carlos Palomino. Uh, just incredible, both posed and action shots. And there was something about them that was almost better than the reality of them in that they're so, they're both anachronistic yet incredibly present and they're very vibrant and really amazing in that they sort of harken back, but they're just so unique. So, you know, I, I started diving into the story of the Olympic, and um, and then I, I fell in. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way that you characterize sports photography. It's an art form all its own, which I appreciate. And then when you're talking about seeing it on television, that was something that began in the 60s or later, where it would be broadcast on KTLA? It was earlier. It was one of the first things on when KTLA got its license, wrestling was one of the first things that they put on. So early, late 40s, early 50s even, oh. right when television was starting, you know, there was a huge boom in wrestling. It was Gorgeous George and uh, Baron Leone and all of these sort of larger-than-life characters that were so outrageous. And wrestling had a huge, huge impact 
in the 50s. And so it was on the air for a long time. Then they started roller derby in the early 60s. Boxing um, really had its start. I mean, it was it had been televised before, but consistently it was started being televised in the mid '60s, and that led to a big sort of comeback of boxing in L.A. Um, and the Olympic being the forefront of the comeback of boxing in L.A., where you had all these Bobby Chacon and Danny Little Red Lopez, all the Mexican American fighters who, you know, became legends, and the Olympic sort of had a revival starting in the mid '60s around boxing. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that the dawn of television actually kind of chronicled this as well. And going back to the beginning, it was built in 1924 and really with its sights set on hosting the 32 Olympics for, I think it's, it was wrestling and weightlifting. It was boxing and wrestling and weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting story in that I think LA was awarded the games in 23 24 they broke ground on the Olympic 25 it opened and um it was a difficult birth of this building if you want to put it that way in that you know the 20s is sort of like the present in many ways it was it was a real time of ethnic tension and LA was growing rapidly, you know, having changed from, you know, from ranchos being bought up and then being built out and oil being the the primary driver of it. People think of the movie business as the primary driver of Los Angeles, but it's really the oil business. And uh, the Olympic is very tied into that in that the man who put the financing together for the Olympic was... Uh, Edward Doheny's partner, um, a guy named Jake Danziger. And uh, Danziger sort of put a consortium together of power players in L.A. to finance the building on a land lease that was the L.A. Athletic Club. The L.A. Athletic Club, which uh, is obviously still open in its historic headquarters downtown, was at one point looking to expand downtown. They were going to... They thought... L.A., their their feeling was that L.A. was moving south. It actually didn't really do that in that, that way, but they had bought this property, which was originally a seminary. I think it was Loyola. Um, and so, so it has this very interesting sort of history. So the Olympic was leased to Danziger and this consortium of people. They hired uh, an architect named Gilbert Stanley Underwood, who was famous for the Desmond's Department Store, the Awani Inn, a ton of, of national park buildings and yes. facilities. And it was built, and it went way over budget. At the time, it was really state-of-the-art. It was built um, cast concrete, which was pretty unique, and that's the way all stadiums and arenas are built now. So it allowed it to have great sight lines without posts. And so it was built... People are under the misnomer that it was really purpose-built for boxing. Um, It was in a way, but it was really designed to compete with Madison Square Garden and to be L.A.'s sort of answer to Madison Square Garden, where it would host not just boxing and sports, but conventions and opera and all sorts of... Right, and um, ballet, even. Ballet and all, all sorts of interesting things, but... It you know quickly ran into trouble. It was in foreclosure within the first year of its opening, and it was it ended up being foreclosed upon by the LA Athletic Club. 
So, and that was lawsuits and, and craziness for years because the LA Athletic Club tried to shake loose the creditors, all the people who helped build it. And they ended up with the building, they ended up having to pay their creditors, but it was a long, painful birth. And it was really kind of, you know, it was a troubled building in many ways for many years in that it was big. Uh, it was a 10,000 seater and it was, uh, it had some success, but it was a, you know, the context of the times was quite unique in that it was losing money. Whatever they were doing, it was losing money for the LA Athletic Club. It was always a white elephant. And do you think that it wasn't commercially viable until after the Olympics? Well, I mean, the Depression happened. So that was, you know, so that's 29, 30. And it had its successes. It's not that it didn't draw people. I think there was a lot of corruption as well. And people were putting money in their pockets, you know, boxing. LA was an extremely corrupt town. People don't really realize that, that, I mean, I guess some people do, but before the mob came in, it was really just graft. It was the, you know, Mayor Shaw and all of back in the 20s and 30s, it was a deeply corrupt town where the police and city hall basically were, you know, skimming. And so between boxing, which always had its share of rogues and wrestling, and uh, it was just not a money-making enterprise. So it really didn't start having any success financially consistently until Eileen Eaton took over when she was Eileen LaBelle in World War II, 1942. And then mm. uh, she, it, it was interesting, it took a woman to harness this testosterone in a way and, and mind the books and mind the business so that it became a, a viable concern. So that was the first 17 years of its existence. It was basically a white elephant. Wow. I'm glad that you brought up Eileen. She was really the most successful promoter of the Olympic. And it seems in my research that she then married Cal Eaton and they ran it together. But in some of the stories I've read, there's also Mike LaBelle, who is her son, who then took it over when she retired. If, Not if I quite. I mean, it's a, it's a tangled web in that basically Eileen did take it over. She got the lease. She was Eileen LaBelle at the time. She then uh, brought in Cal Eaton to be her promoter for boxing and ended up uh, marrying Cal a few years later and uh, became Eileen Eaton. And Cal was... Uh, how do I put this? Eileen was running the show. Cal was definitely the face in that in the 40s and 50s, you weren't going to have a woman, at least in front of the scenes, in any business, pretty much, especially boxing, wrestling. But she really was the strength and the mind and a really brilliant woman who did have a, an incredible run for almost four decades. She sort of created this um, this sports empire in Los Angeles. Wow, multi-generational. And she is the one who then had the deal with KTLA to promote the boxing, wrestling, and roller derby on Fridays and Saturdays that became kind of a... It. She was very smart with television um, at a time when a lot of people were struggling with television because it killed nightlife in so many ways. People started staying home. 
um, instead of going to the movies and going to bars. Um, you know, once television became attainable for people, the, the cost came down enough where everyone could own a television or, you know, uh, it, it started sucking people away from going out, which led to a whole revolution really in the way people lived. I mean, in the mm -hmm. same way the internet did and does. Right, affects um, that today. Today, television, people don't quite, I don't know if they realize how much it changed society and their habits. And so, yeah, uh, she understood that. And she always tried to make sure that she balanced it where it didn't affect her live gate. So she would, for example, keep the main event off of television. So you'd see the prelim fights, but you wouldn't, she wouldn't give you the main event. Ah, uh, interesting. Um, because obviously she was very savvy in using television to try to keep, you know, the business, uh, her real business was, was filling the arena. It wasn't, you know, getting people on television, but instead of fighting it, she did her best to ride that wave and use it to her benefit, mm -hmm. um, mostly successfully. I mean, it's really hard. I think, you know, I mean, the end of the 50s was really difficult for a lot of, you know, all the boxing clubs in L.A. There were, there were multiple clubs at that time and wrestling clubs. There was uh, the Ocean Park Arena in Santa Monica that was running weekly shows. There was the Hollywood Legion um, uh, on Vine, like Hollywood and Vine. That was where all the stars went. You know, the stars came to the Olympic, but they really flocked to the Legion. There was, you know, El Monte Legion Stadium. So there was a lot of, you know, smaller venues. The Olympic was always the largest. It was, mm -hmm. you know, at 10,000 seats. But, you know, the Hollywood Legion held five or something, Ocean Park three. So they weren't tiny. And this was a thriving ecosystem of clubs um, for both boxing and wrestling. And when it all kind of came apart in the late 50s, for a variety of reasons, but I think a lot of it was television and people's habits changing in terms of going out. Right. Um, she managed to keep the Olympic going while all the other clubs closed. Every single one of them, um, Ocean Park, I think earlier, and then I think the Legion shut down in 59. Mm -hmm. So um, she managed to keep it going through thick and thin. And roller derby was one way that she did that. Um, it was actually roller games uh, officially <laughs> because roller derby had a team in LA. They left a new league started because um, LA was open and that was the LA T-Birds in 1960, 61. And they moved into the Olympic and there was a TV contract. They had a TV contract wow. and that sort of helped keep things going while the, well, boxing was really down. Mm -hmm. Boxing was at a, at a low, low, low point in the in the late '50s and early '60s, really into the mid '60s, um, at least in terms of, you know, being able to run a weekly show, which is what was unique about the Olympic. Um, and the Olympic was adaptive to roller derby because they had a movable floor that they. I'm not really sure what the right term is for that, but they could bring it into the auditorium when roller derby was happening and then move it out for boxing and and other venue uses and i'm assuming that that was kind of unique it the was Olympic. an incredibly well-designed building considering it was built in 24 and it had no air conditioning um it had 
I read about at the time, they had this, you know, what they talked about, some revolutionary ventilation system where they could open, basically open windows, uh, or big sort of uh, above, uh, you know, in the rafters, they had sort of, uh, you know, large windows they could open. <laughs> and that was revolutionary. So, but, um, but it was a very adaptable building and it had a loading dock and the way they were able to load the track in and out. And then you can't forget all the movies that were shot there. It was really Hollywood's back lot in terms of films. So starting in from 1926 is the first that I know of, which was Buster Keaton's really? Battling Butler in yeah. 1926, The Three Stooges' Punch Drunks in the 30s. In the 40s, there was a lot of film noir shot there. Um, and wow. then, and is that just because it was so huge, like a soundstage that... Or were they actually shooting like boxing scenes? They would, I mean, boxing was a big, I mean, because boxing was a big deal in culture. It was a part, people don't think about it in the same way now, but it was part of nightlife. It was a big deal at that time. So, um, so there were tons of boxing movies shot and it wasn't just used for boxing, but pretty much every big boxing movie, you know, was shot there. I was just, someone reminded me on our social media, um, which is uh, on Facebook, we are the Olympic Auditorium Project. And uh, on Twitter, we're uh, at Olympic Odd and uh, we're Olympic Auditorium on Instagram. So oh, we good. have I'm active, glad you're mentioning that. So we have active, continue. we have active social media accounts mm. that really have sort of an LA history aspect to them. And uh, we post about all of uh, the connections today we posted something on instagram about jimmy lennon uh in a monkeys episode uh that was shot at the olympic but you know if you think raging bull was shot at the olympic right i was aware of like the bigger rocky was shot even at rocky, the olympic right and the but original manchurian candidate manchurian candidate was shot there yeah so there were all so. sorts of amazing films that were shot at the olympic and uh uh so it had it had this and Eileen was very smart and savvy about her Hollywood connections. Like her son, Gene, was a stuntman and actor, and he was uh, a connection to Hollywood. And when, she, and when, back in the 60s, when she had her television boxing comeback, she would always have sort of A-list stars would come and plug their movies, you know, nice. in the way that it's done now. But she really kind of was a pioneer with that. And... You know, they would get on camera and she would she would just, you know, a Jean who's alive and and wonderful and an incredible character, Jean LaBelle, who's Eileen's son, uh, would say they would only she'd only allow A list people, no B list mm. things, you know, it was a big star. So. And Jean would interview them on camera? Eileen would interview them. Oh. Uh Jean would do he was really involved in wrestling and he would do after Dick Lane left, he was became a wrestling announcer for the Olympic. So he was more late sixties, seventies boxing, you know, a lot of legendary announcers like Dick Enberg, who we interviewed before he passed, he got his start at the Olympic auditorium. Uh, Keith Jackson was also another, uh, guy who started at the Olympic. Um, so there were a lot of great, you know, a lot of people got their starts at the Olympic, and Eileen mm. was very savvy at at uh, finding talent. And then as we move into the 80s, wrestling itself changed uh, ge geographically. The WWE, if I'm 
not that's correct. Thing. No, it was, yeah. Yeah, I think it was WWF at that time, but the right. same idea of Vince McMahon. Yeah, they mm-hmm. kind of took it away from Los Angeles, and it was still being televised, but was it the birth of cable television that helped kind of well, it was, catapult I mean, that? I re- let's put it this way. The Olympic was an anachronism long before it sort of died, in a way. It, it sputtered to a death. Um you know, Eileen was this sort of central force holding it together, I is at least my my feeling. When when Mike, her son, ran wrestling, she put him in charge of wrestling back in the in this in the sixties. Um and her really her real true love was boxing. She absolutely loved the sport and was fascinated by it. Gene was sort of in and out of the business. He was more more in Hollywood, but he was a regular presence at the Olympic, but he wasn't uh he didn't, other than being sort of the the uh, celebrity representative and being the sort of conduit with Hollywood, and then later he was sort of brought in the business to be an announcer. Mike was more the business guy with that, but he he didn't care that much really about wrestling. L.A. in the '70s and where the Olympic was located also had a a, a part in its sort of decline too it was right you know, yeah, we was, should talk about how it's really kind of in the center of three freeways that have converged around it so which is fascinating too i mean in in terms of the fact that the santa monica freeway came in like 59 right through downtown la and it cut the olympic off from the rest of downtown in some ways it was a i guess it was helpful I mean, obviously, it helped speed people at that time um, through Los Angeles, but it really cut the Olympic off. And over time, it became seedier and seedier. You know, when you're right adjacent to a freeway underpass and, you know, following the Watts riots in the late 60s and, and white flight out of, you know, the business districts in downtown L.A., um, it became more isolated. And that isolation combined with people's changing tastes made it really harder and harder to kind of keep a consistent promotion. Um, Boxing through Eileen's sheer will and having a great team around her uh, persisted and had a lot of success still into the 70s. But wrestling, it really was having a hard time keeping it going. So when, when Vince McMahon... Junior took over from Vince McMahon Sr. in the early 80s, L.A. was kind of ripe for the picking because it was already had declined and and bringing in a national program and really sort of bringing, whether you like it or not, more quality control to what they were doing. You know, it's not my cup of tea particularly, but I respected at least they brought some more quality than what was really going on at the Olympic at the end. You know, the mm-hmm. Olympic at the end was really, you know, lumberjack matches and really like s- the promotions became implausible <laughs> and people, you know, wrestling's like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't have storylines that people can kind of follow and, you, and you're slack in your storytelling, you're slack in your character development, it's hard to kind of, keep it going and and I think it was really struggling at the time and and there was not enough energy sort of being put into that so it was a bunch of forces really that kind of right. killed off the Olympic promotion and 
which with finally, you know, the Eaton's losing the lease in the early eighties because they never owned the building. It was always owned by the LA athletic club until the early eighties when it was sold, um, to the Needleman family who owned a lot of real estate downtown and parking lots and this, that, and, 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 you know, it kept on, but everything about it started to kind of become lesser. This has been Laura Craven with Los Angeles on JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. Next time, you'll hear part two of our two-part interview with filmmaker Steve Dubrow, who created the documentary 18th and Grand, chronicling the life of the Olympic Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep, deep talk, talk, deep, deep sounds. sounds.